Insecure, a security podcast, brought to you by the Center for Global Security Challenges. See it, say it, secure it. I am Dr. Marine Guéguin, a research fellow for the Center for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds. And I am Dr. Harry Swinhoe, a research fellow at the Center for Global Security Challenges at the University of Leeds. And together, we will be discussing security in an increasingly insecure world. This podcast aims at bringing together postgraduate researchers, early career researchers, and established academics to discuss their research and explore the six core themes of the Center for Global Security Challenges, gender security, global reordering, health security, peace and conflict, terrorism and political violence, and environmental security. We launched the podcast and our first season in April 2021 with three episodes that you actually really liked. For the first season, we discussed climate security, terrorism, and the future of terrorism studies. We are back for a second season. The second season will bring episodes on the future of security studies, gender security, and nuclear weapons, civil war, and more. So stay tuned. In the meantime, you can find the first season of Insecure, a security podcast on Spotify, Acast, SoundCloud, and at the Center for Global Security Challenges website where you can also find out more information about the centre and its cutting-edge research. Security for who? The floor is yours. Do you have questions? If you have any questions for our guests, then get in touch using our Twitter handle, at InsecurePod, or hashtag InsecurePodcast, or email us at InsecurePodcast at Outlook.com, and your question may be featured on the show. Hello, everyone. Um very excited about today's special episode which Maureen and I recorded at the Centre for Global Security Challenges and the European Journal of International Security's joint conference on the topic of security in a time of polycrisis which was held in May 2023. We had a wonderful opportunity to interview a number of panellists who took part in this conference about their research and about how that research relates to this broader concept of polycrisis. So the term polycrisis has gained prominence in recent years as a way of trying to articulate this context in which multiple intersecting crises in the contemporary world interact and intersect with one another. So we have interlocking environmental disasters, recently obviously the global pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the potential that might hold for nuclear conflict or issues around nuclear weapon use, all within entrenched and further entrenching structures of militarization, exploitation, global inequality. So this concept of polycrisis is a way of trying to articulate this age of multiple crises and an idea of one's potential plural catastrophe. So this conference was aimed at emphasizing and trying to address the importance of understanding how these multiple crises do intersect with and affect one another and exploring this concept of polycrisis further. The panelists who agreed to speak with us at the conference were Dr. Albert Griffin, Ishmael Balar, Jethro Norman, Dr. Natalie James and Catherine Pye. And they all, in their own ways and in relation to their own research, gave us wonderful insights into 
how they understood polycrisis and how this concept might relate to different contexts, different themes, and different areas of security. This will be the last episode before we take a break for the summer, and then we'll come back with further episodes in August, September. So please do enjoy this episode and make sure you tune back in when we come back with our next set of episodes at the end of summer. Thank you. Dr. Albert Griffin is a researcher and associate lecturer in Latin American cultural studies with a particular interest in violence, popular culture and urban ethnography. She is a member of the Centre for Global Security Challenges and also the Centre for Latin American and Caribbean Studies. And Harry is with her to discuss her research after her presentation at the conference. I'm here with Alba Griffin from the University of Leeds, who's just been presenting her paper on Los Angeles, which is a Colombian film about graffiti artists and everyday violence. So Alba, I was just wondering if we could start with a question we ask everyone. So in the context of your research, do you feel like the world has become more secure or insecure over the course of your research? I think that in researching Colombia, there's a huge body of literature on Colombian violence. And Colombia was one of the fields that developed the kind of an academic field of la violentología, so violent studies, essentially. So I don't think that we could say that it's becoming more insecure because one of the interesting things about Colombia is that it has had this constant trajectory of violence, even when it's been in the background to people's everyday lives. So that's one of the things that I found so fascinating, because then you, it leads to the question of not just kind of the presence of violence, but how people negotiate that, how they respond to that, how they choose to engage with it or disengage with it. But also thinking more specifically about security, how does the presence and narratives of violence in the everyday make people feel more or less insecure and so Colombia is a good example because particularly in the urban centers there's this sense of being in a dangerous city and having to take particular precautions to avoid opening yourself up to vulnerabilities so the phrase in Spanish is no dar papaya, don't expose yourself, right? And so there's all sorts of ways in which people do this, which is kind of maintaining a sort of um, tunnel vision as you move through space and trying to not engage with people in the streets, being wary about how you use public transport or not using public transport, going to certain parts of the city or not going to them because you associate them with insecurity. And I think that is a very interesting narrative, partly because that almost takes away from the people who are actually living in security. And I think those are the people who probably we should be focusing on more because they're the ones who kind of, you know, don't have access to employment or are facing multiple forms of violence and have to negotiate crises in their everyday lives, as well as kind of being hidden from the rest of the society in the sense that the rest of society wants to try and keep themselves away from it. So I think there's a really interesting kind of sense of continuity in the notion of insecurity and in the notion of violence in my research, while also recognizing that crisis points to moments of rupture within that. So it's a tricky question. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. Thank you for answering it so comprehensively. And you've touched on it already, but obviously the panel that you're sitting on, thinking about, and it's called Everyday Security. But from what you were just talking about, 
in many ways it's people feeling this everyday insecurity and living in this everyday kind of constant insecurity so is that maybe the angle that we should be looking at it from instead everyday insecurity rather than security I think in the sense of kind of diagnosing what violence is and what it means to people there's definitely a benefit to thinking about insecurity and and focusing on who is affected by forms of violence and what is the responsibility of others to be reducing insecurity for those people rather than reproducing them so if you think about kind of police for example state institutions politicians they might talk about security but who are they providing security for what do they mean by it and it's often not protecting the most vulnerable to insecurity but having said that I think there is definitely a benefit to talking about everyday security because it points to the ways in which people manage insecurity and find ways to negotiate and deal with violence and in my talk I spoke about graffiti artists who find in popular culture in kind of creativity a way of managing their place in society, responding to the violence that they might see around them, even if they're not direct victims of it. So kind of referencing violence that might be happening across the world in their own graffiti or using public space as a way of claiming their right to the city from which they are otherwise marginalised or excluded or subject to various forms of prejudice. And again, to police violence, but one of the key themes in it. So thinking about everyday security encourages us to think about everyday strategies. And that, again, refocuses on the ways in which people critique the world around them and respond to it and find ways to deal with it. So that that creativity is a means of constructing everyday security for those individuals. Exactly. I think it can be a more optimistic way of thinking about violence because you're then thinking about how people create their own spaces for agency and are not just positioned as the powerless or as victims. Yeah. Uh, great. The last thing I wanted to ask you, reframing from the question that I'd planned, but in terms of how this relates to kind of the broader question of polycrisis that the conference is about, because it seems like you could talk about everyday violence in Colombia as part of the polycrisis, but also that the two characters in the film are kind of inhabiting their own polycrisis, where they have all these crises kind of intersecting for police violence, forced displacement, poverty and equality and so on. So I guess, how do you find polycrisis useful or what does it mean for you in your research? I think one of the interesting things about the film is that it brings out this collective and individual and thinks about violence and crisis on multiple levels. And I don't think it necessarily sets out to do that or does it explicitly, but I think there's something interesting in the way that they have presented the everydayness of violence and yet really honed in on very few characters and paid attention to their everyday lives, their everyday relationships. So for example, you know, there's an overarching recognition of, you know, a corrupt political system and a very militarized politics and the kind of the broad level of police violence. And yet at the same time, the way that appears is through for example one of the main characters relationship with his mother which is it is tender and it is respectful and they have had to live through forced displacement so they don't actually talk about that process and what happened to them but there's a sense of care and the concern about you know from the mother about how her son might be able to find employment and she goes to the church she finds solace in the church and he sees it 
as a space of corruption and authority. And so that the, there's kind of those levels that they're touching on those different scales, but playing them together. And I think that's what's interesting about the idea of polycrisis and where it plays out and how we might be able to perceive it or see it or see how it affects people's lives. But the final scene of the film actually is uh, the two graffiti artists. They were painting a mural of a beautiful tree in a neighbourhood and the police just came and beat them up and put them in the back of the van and then dumped them out in the countryside. So I think that's interesting. One reason, because they are not painting anything political. They are just using the walls, right? So it's already questionable why the police would see that as such a threat and then dumping them in the road. But what happens after that is that the two friends kind of just mess around in the countryside, climb a big tree, sit out looking over a beautiful landscape and talk about wanting to paint their mother, wanting to paint their grandmother. And so there's a kind of lovely reference to, I think almost a feminist approach to thinking about the personal and the politics of the personal and those close relationships and how they are the important things that they want to paint in this public space through their graffiti. And then also the last line being the problem being money because you have to find money to do that. So again, it draws into play these kinds of everyday personal negotiations of crisis, the ways in which people kind of try and respond to them through, for example, painting, and the the relationships that are important to them. Well, thank you for that. That was a really useful discussion of how the polycrisis can be personal as well as the personal kind of responses to it. So thank you very much. Ishmael is a doctoral researcher in the Faculty of Business and Law at the University of Portsmouth. Ishmael looks at the influence of small states in the making of international humanitarian law relating to lethal autonomous weapon systems. So his research follows the current debate within the United Nations Convention on certain conventional weapons and on the regulation of emerging technologies in the form of autonomous weapon system, with an interest in how the doctrines of equality and inclusion are applied with regards to small states' participation. Thank you, Ishmael, for agreeing on this. So our first question is, reflecting on your research and maybe what you presented today, is the world more insecure? Yeah, thank you for having me here. I feel like it's much more insecure, particularly looking at autonomous weapon systems, because these are weapons that can have the ability to decide on their own. They have the ability to evolve during their life cycle. So we do not know what would happen if there is an, a glitch in the algorithms, if there is any other problem with the software or the hardware or whichever is being used in the autonomous weapon system. And then secondly, the other thing that I feel like is more of a challenge is the position of those who are vulnerable, the states or people with disabilities or maybe people of different races. AI is not perfect at all. And this means that whenever, wherever it, it's used, it's going to be discriminatory. So I feel like the world has certainly become more insecure with autonomous weapon systems. Thank you. And one last question. So we were wondering, how does international law respond to polycrisis or even frame the polycrisis 
and even thinking about leaving people behind, as you were talking about, and reflecting with the notion of accessibility that you presented today. So how does actually international law respond to polycrisis? Uh, international law has generally been touted as something that can help everyone in the world, that can help secure different groups in, in the world. But we have challenges. We still have challenges. In a perfect world, it should respond to the policy crisis because we have issues to do with racial inequality, with international inequalities. All these issues can be dealt with by international law. But we need everyone to be at the table so that it can effectively be dealt with, so that international law can actually work perfectly. Because if you leave out those people who are going to be affected, then it means there is going to be a problem in the future or even now. Mm -hmm. So this is a challenge for international law, and it should work perfectly if everyone is involved, if everyone is really there, because it's just to do with disability. It's a crisis when it's dealing with autonomous weapon systems, race, ethnicity, gender, age, and all that. So even the geographical differences, international law can help to bring everyone together and to sort of level the playing field. But we need to do it together. That's yeah. a key point. Everyone needs to have a seat at the table. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. Jethro Norman is a postdoctoral researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies. So Jethro's research focuses on Somalia, Kenya, Tanzania, with expertise in humanitarianism, security, conflict and development. Primarily an ethnographer, he also does archival work and research and adopts theoretical perspective on postcolonialism, infrastructure and immobilities. And we have Harry, who's with him after presenting at the conference. Hi there, we're with Jeffro Norman, who was just presenting earlier on Somaliland and the disputed area between Somaliland and Puntland and people's experiences of everyday security. And so first off, the kind of general question that we ask everyone that's sort of maybe too big of a question, but in relation to your specific research context, do you think it's become more insecure over the period of your research or not? Yes, absolutely. In quite a dramatic way, actually. So I was, as you say, I'm working in, in kind of eastern Somaliland, in yeah. specifically a town called Las Anod, where I was 2021 doing some field work. And it was sort of relatively peaceful then. And now it's actually the epicenter of a, a kind of conflict uh, that's emerged between the clan that lived there, the Dilbahanti clan, and the Somaliland administration. Dilbahanti, they want to rejoin Somalia. That's a strong subtext of economic marginalization. And then in late December, there was these anti-government protests that very quickly spiraled into a kind of armed insurrection. It's continuing today, actually, to this day. There was some heavy clash there sort of earlier this morning. So yes, it's, it's definitely got a lot more insecure and deteriorated quite quickly in the last few months. Okay, thank you for that. And in relation to how this links to the overall theme of the conference regarding polycrisis, do you think that this particular conflict should be understood as kind of a polycrisis in and of itself, like all these intersecting crises, or as part of 
Sort of the polycrisis. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm still grappling yeah. with the concept of polycrisis and how far it, it, it can be stretched globally. So in Somalia, I think, in Somali territories, I, I tend to think of crisis as context. In other words, not as episodic, but as endemic. And I think this is the case if you look at the response that has been to the current conflict in the last hour that I was talking about today. It actually draws on many of the same mechanisms, crisis response mechanisms, as that are already in motion for dealing with, for example, drought, flooding, and general kind of underdevelopment and things like that. So in that sense, I think the Somali territories are characterized by these kind of rolling crises anyway. And that sort of that should be the baseline, that should be the starting point for how we sort of conceptualize you know, what's going on. Whereas the polycrisis itself is a bit more of a more recent kind of linguistic, I hesitate to say buzzword, but kind of thing uh and and yeah so i'm still trying to grapple with whether polycrisis really fits what i'm talking about here or whether there are other alternative conceptions of crisis okay cool and in terms of that idea of crisis as kind of the context in which people are living i guess and you talked about the way in which the impact of smartphones and new media ecologies has meant that people are constantly connected and involved in the crisis or the crisis context, including those who in previous generations might have been more distant from it because they're in a diaspora community. What impact do you think that's had on kind of the people that you work with, this idea of kind of being in the crisis all the time? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's very significant. I'm still trying to sort of think through it, actually, at this time. But I think the sort of relevant context, as you mentioned, is that, you know, because of the legacy of the civil war and state collapse in Somalia, there is a very large global diaspora that remains often very engaged, actually, in the politics and the conflicts in the country of the territories. So when you add to that rapidly acquired kind of digital connectivity, so beginning 2010s, you really get a lot more cheap smartphones becoming available to people, even in very rural areas, some of the cheapest data rates in the world. So when you add that context to an already engaged, transnationalized diaspora, you have quite a potent mix, actually. What we're seeing in that sound at the moment is actually live streams of some of the shelling of the town and some of the attacking of a civilian infrastructure, for example. So that's literally being broadcast live on Facebook around the world. And that is something that is quite a novel development. And it's something that changes the character of the conflict. It also changes the way in which people participate in the conflict. So now if you're a diaspora guy sitting in your basement in Toronto, you can actually participate in the war in certain ways in terms of geolocating certain acts of be construed as war crimes in terms of packaging a lot of the data that's and information that's coming out in terms of videos and images and in terms of lobbying international organizations and, and bilateral partners to try to push for a resolution to the conflict and to try and raise awareness so it has you have this whirlwind of just information at the moment a whirlwind of videos and images so the trick is kind of making sense of that because in the middle of that you also have a lot of misinformation and a lot of sort of fake news, if you like, coming around it. It's very similar to some of the dynamics we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, but I would actually argue in the Somali instance, it's in some ways more more entrenched. It's more significant because of the diaspora angle, because the media and ecologies we're talking about have already been put in motion. And thank you. The last question is, what drives the actors involved to aim these outputs at the international community and produce these English language outputs? Guys, saw Christopher Absalone talking a few months ago about Al-Shabaab and how they seem to go through these phases of producing English language propaganda output and Arabic and then 
Somali. And so, yeah, it's just wondering what drives the kind of different... Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And and you get exactly the same thing in this conflict where a huge amount of the media strategy is oriented towards the international community, tagging um, international partners, posting in English, trying to hit the right buttons, particularly around asymmetrical violence. Actually, Amnesty International report has just come out about the civilian killings and deaths in Los Alamos. So it's working, this strategy, right? But I think the logic behind it is also that in the Somali territories, you have a huge amount of international funders and donors. Somaliland state is very much supported by international funds. So if you can reach those donors, and actually what I've argued before is that some of the donor funds actually were responsible for the way in which this crisis has evolved. If you can make that argument and show them those images, they almost can't ignore it. And therefore, they have to start talking about it. And therefore, there is political pressure, for example, on the Somaliland army to stop the shelling so i think that's the logic and i think media in that way is very empowering certain people within this context of this asymmetrical violence and this heavily sort of international dependency as well yeah well thank you so much for saying that and we won't take any more of your time but thank you thank you so much we now have an interview with natalie james natalie is a researcher in terrorism and counter-terrorism particularly the uk's counter-terrorism policy and how it interacts with education. She also works on the UK counterterrorism approach to the far right and issues of intersectionality. Her work has engaged with a critical analysis of the experiences of the prevent duty within Greater Manchester's further education institutions to understand how threat is conceptualised by actors within the sector and how actors within the sector use their own agency to respond to and engage with UK counterterrorism policy. Hi there, I'm with Natalie James, who's just been presenting a paper that she's uh, co-authoring with Jack Holland on prevent duty, its role in everyday security, and students and sort of ordinary citizens, ordinary people as agents of kind of the prevent duty and kind of feeding into the prevent process. The first question is kind of a question we ask everyone. And it's this question of within research context of the field, do you think the world has become more secure or more insecure? Yeah, so the paper specifically, what we're trying to do with it is to demonstrate how actually the that a focus on state level security is actually really problematic and is failing to really demonstrate how security becomes articulated. And so a slight pushback against the the kind of the question in that for actually what we understand security as is this co-produced notion of how an individual on that micro level, how they feel secure, how they engage and produce in their own security and in response to what they believe is is insecurity. So in the paper, we demonstrate how this notion of countering radicalization as a way of achieving security for the state on a individual basis within the context of education so educationalists and students actually it's their notion of what security is to them as an institution to them as individuals within that institution is actually quite different and for them it's more about how do we ensure that students and and that staff because it applies to staff as well but predominantly students how do we ensure that they are safe from these processes that might be applied onto them. And that tends to be around identifying vulnerabilities. And that's the framework that that they use to do that. So for 
kind of as a as a pushback is is the world more secure actually what we've been looking at are, are individuals more secure and how do they interpret that and for some of them that yes the world is secure because they don't feel that threat of radicalization is close to them they don't feel that it's something that happens to them or happens to people nearby them and if we kind of look at the other extreme of radicalization of what happens when someone is radicalized do they feel that that is likely to happen to them or people around them no a lot of people don't but for others that yes the world is very insecure not necessarily because they particularly feel susceptible to radicalization or because they feel that the events the outcomes of radicalization could happen to them but because of the articulations of what insecurity is and the articulations of who might become radicalized because of that actually they do feel insecure so one example we had I had a Muslim Somalian black female student who felt incredibly insecure in the context of the prevent duty because her identity was seen by wider society under these kind of stereotypical and and prejudicial narratives as being someone who was represented a risk to security because of her racial and religious identifiers so for her her world was very insecure because of what she faced in wider society as I say for others it, it was very secure so for me there's a kind of pushback on that that state levels understandings of security can be very very different without an individual and for me it's the importance of focusing on the individual that matters in determining that so i guess that links to maybe some of the human security literature that idea of security as being about the individual person rather than you know security as national security yeah exactly and i think part of i suppose where i kind of indifference to that is now from an academic perspective i'm not necessarily concerned with you know what that looks like in terms of obtaining security for that individual but more about how that person engages with the process of what security it looks like and how they articulate it what do they see as a threat for themselves to themselves what do they see as countering that threat and, and their role in that process so rather than kind of the concern with the obtaining of that security what role do the people play and, and what role do they believe that they play in that process of it and the prevent treaty is one application where the government say this is how we obtain security through intervening in the kind of the pre-crime space okay well what does that look like for the people who are charged with that responsibility do they agree that this is a necessary function in order to obtain state security yes in some ways they do where they reproduce those narratives but in other ways no they resist some discourses that the government give them and and in other ways which is the central argument of the paper in that they reimagine them they take some of the kind of the negotiations of those moments of reproduction resistance and they re-articulate what that means for them in practice and how can that work for us in practice as educationalists how can we apply that and how can we do what the government is asking us to do but do it in a way that doesn't stigmatize and discriminate our students that doesn't cause issues for us in the classroom that doesn't kind of perpetuate some of the wider narratives that we find problematic but ultimately that still tick a box for Ofsted. Okay and then this is the last question and thank you for covering everything so far but building on what you just said about the way in which people construct threats for themselves or security threats for themselves how do you think that the concept of securitization comes into or marries into this other concept that the panel was about of everyday security. 
Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that we are exploring in the paper is because I don't necessarily think that they are counter to each other. So this idea that, you know, involving everyday people suddenly normalises policy, well, it does to an extent, but for me, those two things can be separated. So securitization and everyday security shouldn't run in counter to each other. And we kind of demonstrate how actually bringing in everyday actors demonstrates how that process of securitization actually comes about happening and we do that through the framework that we're putting forward of people as enactors of state so that they're taking the kind of state securitization processes and making it work for them in their circumstances and that in some ways we can see how that enables a normalization of it through things like safeguarding and vulnerability that are some of the frameworks that are used to implement the prevent duty in practice but i think that kind of using them as almost counter to one another simplifies a very complex picture where those two things do coexist there is an acceptance a reproduction of normalization of this being actually it's no different to what we already do we're already looking out for harms we're already trying to safeguard students but that doesn't take away from the fact that there are also elements where there are problematic implementations there are problematic interpretations and what we found in the data is that there's pushback against that and there are attempts by students or attempts by teachers or attempts by designated safeguarding leads to push back against problematic interpretations and implementations of the duty and say, hang on a minute, we know there's a danger that people can become securitized by this particular policy because they are securitized by counterterrorism policy writ large within society. But what we're going to do is try and recognize where and how that happens and counter it within our institution. So we're going to have internal informal mechanisms that enable us to identify if there's potentially problematic racialist narratives emerging. We're going to try and make sure that when we bring in examples into the classroom, we bring in examples from all different types of radicalisation and extremism and terrorism in order to prevent a, a kind of focus on one particular ideology. So I think it, for me, the relationship is really complicated between those terms. And I don't think it's as necessarily as kind of one or the other side of you either have normalization or you have securitization actually what we're trying to demonstrate in this paper that we're writing is those two things coexist and they are constantly in negotiation with one another okay amazing thank you for that thank you for talking with us and we'll let you go thank you very much Catherine Pay is a PhD candidate in the Department of International Relations at the London School of Economics, and her research involves security assistance and peace building and effectiveness, are looking at the EU in the Sahel. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Thank you for, so much for agreeing on participating. So we have a question that we kind of ask to all our guests in this podcast. First, do you think is the world more insecure, reflecting on your own research in the Sahel? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. It's something I think about a lot as well. I don't think the world is more insecure. I think it's insecure in different ways, which I suppose is a bit of a <laughs> trying to get out of answering that question. I think often with the Sahel, as I mentioned in my presentation, you have this intersection of climate crisis and, you know, terrorism 
intercommunal conflict and then you have the unemployment crisis as well it feels like everything is completely unprecedented and completely unmanageable and spiraling and of course the climate crisis is the biggest challenge that we faced as human beings so far of course but then you have to think back to take a long view of history and some of the communities that are currently experiencing conflict we know they were colonized by france and to them at that time it was really the end of the world all of their traditional structures were destroyed, their religious practices, their language was eroded. And and so I think when we think about the poly crisis now, it can be quite easy to be caught up and think we're living in a completely unprecedented time, but taking a long view of history, especially in regions in the global south who experienced colonization, I think actually we find that they've experienced challenges on a similar scale at that time. And perhaps we can learn from how they managed to cope or navigate those crises. Thank you. That's Fascinating. <laughs> and one last question, which I think you kind of already talk about it, but how do you study or how to study the everyday, the translocal, the international and global manifestation of intersecting crisis? Because this is what you were talking about in your presentation when you discuss drug trafficking, human trafficking, unemployment, climate, mm. and therefore their relation to existing inequalities and division. Mm. And in particular, again, reflecting on your research in the Sahel and the EU intervention. Yeah, I think the everyday was a really helpful concept for me and also the ethnographic. So I try to take an ethnographic approach to my question. And I think looking at, you know, it's easy to look at intervention as a really broad concept that's decided in the capitals and sort of looking at grand strategy as we heard or high politics but I think looking at the people who constitute the intervention is really vital in looking at what what these processes actually are Mm -hmm. what does an intervention turn into what does an intervention mean and what an intervention really means on the ground is the practices that are studied you know that are constituted every day by people that work there and you can't understand what an intervention is unless you look at this kind of micro level so yeah perhaps i've strayed a bit from your question but i think taking an ethnographic approach is is more rigorous in lots of ways particularly for people who study intervention as constituted by the interveners Mm -hmm. it's very interesting because I think even the term intervention, looking at colonial practices and the continuities of those practices on the ground, on the macro level, Mm. is, to my point of view, more interesting than this high politics grand strategy. I think looking at the continuity, the continuum, in particular, when you look at the EU, especially France in the Sahel, which is related to what I research, Mm. actually, is the continuities of colonial powers looking at the counterterrorism approach. So yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, an example of that I've encountered in my own research is this discourse on local ownership. So the yeah. idea that the local administrations should be owning the reforms, you know, whatever that means. But some people have drawn parallels between that and the colonial concept of indirect rule. Yeah. So there really is some of the logics, even though like the people change and the systems change or the names change, there is these logics that are very, very durable. Yeah, and this is what the research, the decolonialist approach means by coloniality. is like there's not a, a division between the past and the present, but it's just a continuum. Mm. And I think maybe that's for the future and maybe we can organize an episode with you at some <laughs> point. But there is something really interesting with the, the terminology that you use, the laboratory experimentation, because this is basically in decolonial approach. They look at this and even this terminology has colonial impact and coloniality even. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, that was 
great. We would like to thank everyone who's listening to our podcast. We would like to thank all of our guests for taking part in this episode. Please continue to stay tuned for the rest of season two, which will be coming over the next few weeks and months. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of the major podcast apps and platforms. Get future episodes directly into your feed. And if you did enjoy this episode, then please remember to leave us a rating and review. A big thanks again to the CGSC and EGIS. Laura, Jack and Ted, thanks for this opportunity to record this episode during the conference on security in times of polycrisis. We will do a little break over summer, but we will be back with a few more episodes for our season two. But until then, stay safe and stay secure. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. It was Harry and mine. Insecure. A security podcast. <laughs>